Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, today our guest is Jordan Boyd-Graber, who is an associate professor at the University of Maryland. He's done a lot of interesting work on question answering, in particular a format that is pretty unique uh, in Quizbowl, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. Jordan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And today we thought we'd do something just a little bit different from our typical format. Instead of talking about a particular paper, uh, we're going to give a bit of an overview on question answering as a task and what the different axes are that make different kinds of question answering tasks different, where where complexity is, where different data sets focus. And Jordan has a particular take on this that I think will give us some good insight on this general task. I'll try not to push the task of uh, Quiz Bowl too hard. Yeah, and... and uh, he also has some some stuff that uh, we'll talk about in particular a little bit later on adversarial question generation, uh, which which will be pretty interesting. But we'll give a, an overview first. So I, as I thought about this, I thought there were a few different axes on which we could categorize question answering data sets. And maybe what what I can do is list these different axes briefly, and then we'll talk in depth about each of them and get your your thoughts on what, what's going on here. Sounds good. So the things the things I came up with were how complex is the language in the question? What's the nature of the question semantics or or genre? Is this factoid or common sense or math? This this kind of thing? What's the context for answering the question? Are you answering questions, uh, general questions that are factoid where I can assume I have the whole web? Uh, is this over images? This kind of thing. Like, what what's my context? How much reasoning is there? This is a little bit more nebulous, but we can talk about that. And then, what kind of answer do you give? Is this there? There are some data sets where I select a sentence. I, I have a set of of candidate sentences that give the answer. I just have to select one. There are some that are multiple choice questions, which is similar but a little different. Some that are short answers. Some that, some where you pick a span from the question. You could go even crazy and even crazier and have the system write an essay. We don't really do that at this point, but you could imagine getting there eventually. So these are the different axes that, that I, I thought of um, for question answering data sets. Does that sound reasonable? Are there any that I missed? So I, I think that one thing that's been prominent recently, and I don't know if this falls under a category, is whether the computer absolutely has to answer. And so, uh, for example, uh, knowing whether the system can answer the question is sort of like a meta level of question answering that's been a little popular recently. And so maybe that's just another flavor of answering. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Yep. Um, so maybe what we can do now is go through each of these and talk about them in a little bit more depth. So let's start with this first one. How complex is the language in the question? So I guess when I think about this, I think um, the simplest kind of question answering you could get is a, is a procedural question, so, something that was generated by a program or just like a reference, a, a, a number, an index into like some preset canned list of questions. I wouldn't even call this question answering myself. I'd, I'd prefer to call this slot filling. But an example of this, there's, I, I forget the names, but like wiki movies is one where the, the questions are procedurally generated given some templates. There was a wiki, wiki, Wikipedia info box kind of data set that's very similar where you're given a slot in the, the Wikipedia info box to fill. You could think of this kind of like question answering because you could you could rephrase this as when was Barack Obama born, for instance. But you don't have to understand the question at all. It's given to you as um, just like a, a pre an index into a pre-selected list. 
But I, I think that those sorts of things are still useful because it's still phrased as language and many questions are actually posed in this way. And I think even in systems like Alexa and Siri, uh, these sorts of questions come up fairly often and, and you can get a lot of mileage from these systems. So it, it's a useful place to begin and you can move on to more complicated queries where you're doing things like SQL lookups, even though it's slot filling, uh, there's a more complicated logic behind it. Yeah, that's a really good point. There have been some interesting papers by Omer Levy had one. I think there have been a couple others where you do essentially zero shot relation extraction by treating the relation extraction as a question answering task. So you you basically just have to write down a template for some new slot. Uh, and then if it's natural language, you could train a system on squad, for instance, and transfer it to this new relation and hopefully get good performance. Right. And and then moving on from slot filling, you, you can have uh, arbitrary single sentences that, that can ask just about anything. And there you, you have the complexity of English, which, which can get pretty complex. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you go like as far as possible on this scale, at least in current data sets, maybe this is something like Wikitable questions or complex semantic parsing data sets where you have multiple conjunctions, maybe argmaxes, like this This is talking about it in, in the formal language, maybe that's not the right thing, but you have like nested clauses asking about things like what's the most, or maybe you have several conditions on this, uh, you can get really complex kinds of language. Are there any other hard, complex language data question answering data sets you can think of? All right, so let me begin the first of many advertisements for Quizbull. Uh, so one of the nice things about Quizbull is that you don't just have single questions, you have multiple sentences that form one coherent question. And so in some ways, you can think of this as a paragraph that's posing a question. And sometimes these are all independent sentences, they stand on their own, each of them could be answered independently. But other times you can have much more complex relationships among the questions. So for example, uh, here's a quizable question, and let's see if uh, you guys can answer it from the beginning of the question. At its premiere, the librettist of this opera portrayed a character who asked for a glass of wine with his dying wish. That character in this opera is instructed to ring some bells to summon his love. So this is the first two sentences of a long question that goes on to end. For 10 points, name this Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, titled for an enchanted woodwind instrument. The magic flute. Exactly. And so there are a couple of interesting things going on here. So you have the librettist of this opera, not mentioning the librettist by name, portrayed a character who asked for a glass of wine with his dying wish. Again, not mentioning that character by name. Then the next sentence says that character in this opera is instructed to ring some bells to summon his love. So you have co-ref across sentences linking all of that together. And you could imagine that if you had some IMDb of Mozart operas, you might be able to figure this out, but you would have to reason across questions enabled in order to be able to do that. And then even at the very end of the question, and these questions are structured so that they go from hard clues to easy clues, an enchanted woodwind instrument requires some wordplay in order to figure that out. So these are the sorts of interesting things that happen in these quizable questions. And thousands of these questions are written every year for humans who are able to figure it out and compete with each other. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess I might need to take back my earlier statement about Wikitable questions being the hardest question format because this is this is pretty challenging. Um, though I, I I still would say it's it's hard on a, a bit of a different level, right? So Quizbull has this complex co-ref, but there's less like nested clause where you have like complicated semantics of a of a single sentence itself. Exactly. Yeah. Another 
Another interesting, um, very hard data set is Jeopardy, which is very similar to, to Quiz Bowl. And you, you yourself has, have some history with this, I've, I've heard. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so uh, I uh, have appeared as a contestant on Jeopardy if this airs after September 26th, or I will appear as a contestant on Jeopardy if this podcast uh, posts before then. And how did, you, how did that happen? Uh, yeah, so I have always been interested in trivia, and I used to play on my high school team and at Caltech and at Princeton. I'm the coach of the Maryland team. And the reason I got into question answering as a research topic is I saw IBM go on Jeopardy with their Watson uh, project, and I suddenly realized, oh, well, you can do this for research. And uh, it was a way of merging the things that I was doing uh, for work with the things I do for fun. And uh, I'm very glad that uh, IBM Watson made that possible. What, that was like 2010, 2011? Exactly, yeah. 2010, that was right when I was finishing my undergrad and got me... I, I, I was also very motivated by seeing Watson. I think it inspired a, a, a particular slice of, of a generation of NLP scientists. It was a nice piece of work. Yeah, and, and so one thing that I, I would like to mention about Jeopardy is that, uh, first of all, it was a masterstroke uh, on the part of IBM. One thing that makes... Jeopardy interesting from a competition perspective is that if you want to know who is better at Jeopardy, you have to not only measure how well they can answer questions, but how well they can buzz in, how how well they can signal whether they know the answer. And IBM stipulated that they had to use standard questions in that match. So they couldn't use specially written questions, which makes sense. And so they came from the standard pool that the Jeopardy writers write for the entire season. And these questions were far below the level of questions that Brad and Ken could answer. And so they knew most of the answers. And so Watson was fighting with two humans who knew most of the answers. And Watson got an electrical signal uh, whenever it could answer the question. Uh, because normally in Jeopardy, Alex Trebek reads the question, lights flash on when you can ring in. And if you ring in before those lights come on, you're essentially eliminated from the question. You're locked out for tens of milliseconds, and in the game of Jeopardy, that's death. So Watson was able to compete with these two humans who were playing off against each other and had superhuman reflexes in answering the questions that it wanted to answer. So in that way, you had this guessing and buzzing mechanic that really tilted the game a little bit in Watson's favor. As someone who has been on Jeopardy, that is really, really hard. And, And you can play at home and you can get most of the answers right, but if you can't get the buzzing down, you're completely out of luck. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's that's something I wasn't aware of until I heard you talk about this previously. Yeah, it's hard to get a, lev- a level playing field. And as you've pointed out, Quiz Bowl fixes this a little bit, right? Yeah, so unlike Jeopardy, where you have to wait until the end of the question, in Quiz Bowl, you can interrupt the question as soon as you know the answer. And the Quiz Bowl structure is such that it goes from hard clues to easy clues. And so... The people who are smarter can answer the question earlier. And trivia nerds believe that this is the superior form of question answering because it does a better job of discriminating who knows the most. And in Jeopardy's defense, it would make for bad television. So people can't play along at home if there's a really smart player because they're answering it way before the people at home could answer it. And uh, you don't have the same randomness that you have in Jeopardy. And if the same person always wins, 
uh, it's less fun. Jeopardy has upsets and randomness, and that makes for a better television show. Interesting. So I think that gives a pretty good characterization of this first axis. The, that I brought up of how complex is the language in the question. Uh, the second one I talked about was what's the nature of the question semantics? This is a, maybe a little bit more fuzzy, but what I was trying to get here is, is the, is the genre of the question more of looking at factoid kinds of question answering? Is it trying to get you to leverage common sense uh, or even like an understanding of math or science? Um, so there's there's a data set called simple questions for instance that looks at uh f- basically freebase fact lookup uh the question so uh, in freebase uh it's a knowledge base that was built by i believe metamind that was bought by google um and has since been discontinued but it's got a a, a set of triples like barack obama was born in hawaii for instance and then you might get uh you, they they made questions where you hold one of those things out uh, just from a single fact and you need to predict the thing that was missing, right? And so this is like, this is trying to predict factoid kinds of stuff. Quiz Bowl typically is also factoid. Uh, it's got really complex questions, but in the end, you're still predicting a, a, an entity that's kind of factoid kinds of knowledge. In science question answering, it's a very different kind of kind of question, right? Yeah, and then you have other things like you have the children's book uh, sorry, no, the children's book test, uh, not plural on book, where you have a relatively simple, in terms of the language, book, and you then need to answer reading comprehension questions about that. And and that's from uh, Facebook. Right. Um, and reading comprehension question there, I, I guess we should note that a lot of these axes kind of interact a little bit. So children's book is what we call a close test, where you hold one word out and try to predict the missing word. So whether that's reading comprehension is up to your interpretation. Uh, but but yeah, the, the genre here is like a children's story. And I'm trying to predict uh, missing held out words in in a children's story. So um, I guess we uh, Jordan, you're not aware of this. But in our last episode, we talked um, a, about a narrative QA data set uh, called DuoRC that looks at uh, movie summaries. So there again, uh, the nature of the question uh, the nature of the data set might have more discourse kinds of, of question answering uh, instead of uh, factoid kinds of stuff. So that, that's another axis on which these question answering data sets can vary. What, what's the theme or genre? Uh, and thus, what, what kinds of things might a system need to know in order to answer the question? Yeah, and this is really bleeding into context now because you could also uh, talk about things like visual QA, where, uh, again, you're asking, answering questions about an image or uh, some of the discourse question answering uh, things that have come out very recently, like Quack, where you have a conversation and you need to answer questions in an extended series of questions. Yeah, that that is a good um, transition to this next axis. So uh, you mentioned a few different contexts. Uh, I think it's interesting to think about like what's the set of all of the contexts that people have used. So there's knowledge bases like Freebase. Uh, and this has been used in a, in a few different ways. Uh, you could even say that Quizbowl, for instance, uh, the context that you're answering over is the set of all entities that have been used in previous Quizbowl questions. Um, that doesn't necessarily need to be the case, but uh, from my knowledge of this work, you 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 uh, um, collect beforehand a set of possible Quizbowl answers, 
and you're just selecting from those. So that's essentially the context that you're using to answer these questions. Yeah, and and so to be pedantic, you could ask a, a question about anything, but it's a pretty good bet that uh, if you have all of the possible answers that have been asked before as your answer set, then that's a pretty good baseline, and you can answer in a given year about 90% of the questions that way. Okay, right. Um, so uh, more, more kinds of contexts. Um, for science questions, I know some data sets that have a, a specific scientific reasoning theory. So there's a domain theory where to answer the question, you need to parse the question into a statement in this theory that then gets uh, answered by a reasoning system to, to actually return an answer. Um, there was a food chain data set by some colleagues at AI2 that did this. The, I guess a very prominent question answering data set these days is, is Squad, where the context is a single paragraph. And presumably, all you need to answer the question is in that paragraph. This is similar to the children's book test where you're given a uh, set where hopefully uh, the only thing you need is, is the 10 or so sentences prior to the, to the sentence where a word was held out. You could conceivably have a data set where your input is the whole web. Trivia QA is kind of like this, where you're given a trivia question and you do a web search. Well, they did the web search for you, but in principle, you could do your own web search and try to get the answer that way. Um, you mentioned images. There's visual question answering so your context could be an image things like the cornell natural language visual reasoning data set has this where there's also another variant where your context is a structured representation of the content of the image which is very similar to other kinds of um question answering over structured context like that that could be a knowledge base or it could be a table from wikipedia or like the wiki table questions data set um seems like this is the axis where there's the most variation right I don't think like I've I've mentioned a whole bunch and I feel like there's still a whole lot more. Yeah, I, I think uh, that there are papers on recipes and you have to uh, reason about could you substitute X for Y and things like that. And, and so uh, I'm blanking on what paper actually did that, but I remember seeing that somewhere. Yeah, Yejin Choi's group, I believe, has been has done a lot of work there. Do you have any notion for what contexts make for the most interesting research? Oh, that's really interesting. And I think that the interaction between modalities is really promising. And I think that we haven't done enough to fully exploit that. And while we have some data sets like Visual QA that try to move from one context to another, many of the questions have artifacts that prevent trained models from learning to transfer sufficiently or allow models that don't transfer to do relatively well. And so I think that we need to do a better job of building those data sets to really test how well people can transfer information across these contexts. So that's a way of avoiding answering your question by saying, <laughs> yes, uh, all contexts are interesting and they're even more interesting if you mix them together. Yeah, that's a good point. I think the the choice of context and for a question answering data set really drives the nature of the research. So, for instance, on Squad, the context is a single paragraph, uh, and and by construction, the data set has questions that are largely easy to locate within that passage and uh, and are located in, in a, a small like single sentence. So basically, the the task becomes one of paraphrase. Can I can I tell? Um, what the paraphrase is of this question in this in this paragraph and find the entity type that best matches the question word. And so um, I think what we've found, like what I've taken away from most research on squad is some really nice models for detecting paraphrase. This this like attention matrix kind of stuff and iterating on how we get better attention matrices. 
to, to do this kind of localization is nice. You could argue that maybe we should just have a paraphrase data set to detect, to do that in the first place. Like, why do, why, why do this as question answering? And then that's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, and similarly for things like trivia QA, you basically turned a question answering task into an information retrieval task. And you could say the same thing about some forms of quizable questions that you're basically just trying to find the relevant paragraph out there. And once you find that paragraph, you can answer the question without really understanding the text. And so many times the context drives the models uh, that you'll eventually use. And Obviously, the same thing goes for things like images. Yeah, and so my question then is, when should we look at, if we're interested in studying a particular phenomenon, uh, like paraphrase, for instance, or image understanding, when when should it be a question-answering task versus some other more specific task? I think one of the reasons that people are interested in phrasing them as question-answering tasks is that it allows for competition and comparison more easily. Part of this is that we enjoy competition. We want to say my system is better than yours. And one of the things that have come out of decades of humans playing trivia games and things like that is that we have well-defined systems for competition. So we have the game of Jeopardy, we have the game of Quiz Bowl, and we know how to evaluate who is smarter and who is better at that. And we can shift those same competitive and measurement frameworks to our computer algorithms. And part of that is just that we want to compete. Part of it is that it's fun and it lets us do fun things like uh, put Watson on Jeopardy. But there, there's also a scientific component that I think is valuable that we are now able to draw on the vast uh, history and lessons learned of human question answering about how to design questions that fairly compare people, how to create frameworks that allow you to have maximum discrimination among people or systems. And that makes it useful to phrase things in the question answering format. But as you say, if you really care about paraphrase, sometimes it may be better to have a simple paraphrase data set. But one of the things that we've tried to leverage in our own research is that there are a lot of people who care about question answering and you can get them to create good data for you because they care about question answering on their own. And often these people are more reliable, more inventive, more creative, more knowledgeable than, say, arbitrary crowd workers on the web. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, another another motivation for it that I've thought about a lot. Uh, I work. I did my PhD working on the NEL project, Never Ending Language Learning, and this was trying to build a knowledge base in some formal representation that tried to capture knowledge that was on the web. And what I wondered about a lot is how do you evaluate this thing? And what's the usefulness of this particular formal representation that I've picked? And uh, it seems a little arbitrary to me to evaluate the representation itself. And it seems a lot more useful to evaluate it in some kind of language in, language out kind of task. Because then uh, systems can compete on equal terms and they don't have, they aren't locked into a particular representation that may or may not actually be any good. And I don't actually get to evaluate the usefulness of that representation. So for instance, let's take something like AMR, some kind of predicate argument structure representation of the meaning of a sentence. How useful is it? Like we can write parsers to parse into AMR or parse into some semantic dependency formalism or whatever we want. Uh, but I think what ultimately as, as someone who cares about building systems that work with language, the formalism shouldn't be our end goal. Uh, what we want is a system we can interact with that, that uses language. And so if we can pose 
a, a task that, that is, uh, well, I, I would say that question answering is a, is a useful way to pose a task that re- hopefully requires some kind of um, predicate argument structure. So if you really want to evaluate something like AMR or semantic dependencies, I, I would say that um, the right way to do it, the right way to say, can I really understand predicate argument structure is to construct a question answering task that at least we think requires understanding the predicate argument structure of some passage of text. And then if AMR or your favorite semantic dependency formalism is the right thing, then you should be able to show that using it as a, an intermediate step in my system actually helps performance. Does this, does this make sense? Yeah, and I totally agree. And I'm glad that you brought up working with humans or working together. I think that's another reason that people like question answering in sort of this gameish format, because there you have things like teams working together to say answer a question. And one way to evaluate things like these abstract representations is that if you're using these abstract representations in answering the question, you can create a human computer hybrid team. So like a centaur chess kind of setup where you have humans and computers working together and you can evaluate the utility of those representations by showing them to the humans. And this explains what the computer is thinking. And you could measure how well the human computer team performs as a result with and without these representations. Yeah. Um, Okay. So I think that's... uh... Enough to talking about that third axis about what kind of context we have. The next one I brought up was how much reasoning is there? This is, this seems a little more nebulous to me. I was thinking things like, um, if I have a science, uh, at AI2, we talk about science question answering quite a bit. So think of a question like, uh, I roll a ball, uh, on the floor on the green carpet. It goes faster than on the red carpet. That means that. Uh, either the green carpet has more friction or the red carpet has more friction. You have to pick which one, right? Um, so this seems like it, it requires, well, this, this definitely requires some kind of abstract reasoning, right? It, it's hard to quantify what exactly, like where the reasoning happens. Is this in the question answering? Is this in the question understanding component or do you have an, a separate reasoning engine? Uh, similarly, you can think about math problems. There was a project for, at AI2 for a while trying to answer math SAT questions. Uh, so things like if f of x equals x plus 1, what is f of 3? And there you have to understand what the question, the question semantics and then execute something against some math engine. Uh, and so there's some reasoning involved there. Um, but also I'm thinking of things like how much co-reference is there in the question? Uh, how hard is it to get from the question itself to the answer? Does this does this even make sense as an axis? I think so. And one very simplistic way that we've been trying recently to get at this kind of question is many data sets like Trivia QA or our Quizbowl data set are written by humans for uh, humans. And they often have shortcuts that the computer can take that don't require reasoning. And For example, if you ever see the string phosphonium ilide, you don't have to understand anything about the question, just answer Wittig reaction and you're set. And that basically removes all reasoning from the question. And one thing that we've been doing recently is if we show the trivia experts who write questions on a daily basis for human trivia competitions, how computers react to the questions that they write, they can avoid these shortcuts and write questions that better challenge computers, but are still fit for human consumption, as it were. And so this is a way of trying to 
do like gradient ascent on the amount of reasoning implicit in in many of these question sets. And one of the interesting things that we found is that humans actually like the questions better. They find them easier after they've gone through this process. And so the questions are less formulaic, they're less repetitive, and it still does a good job of discriminating who is the smarter human, but the humans are able to answer them just as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I've seen a, an uptick a little bit in, in building adversarially created data sets. Uh, there was uh, one on uh, common sense inference recently uh, that's at EMNLP this year where you specifically look for um, question, I guess this was, uh, you, you look for instances that are hard for a system to solve. Uh, we're thinking of building a QA data set that also uses some ad- an adversarial component. I think I, I agree with you that this is a, a nice way to make our data sets harder. I guess the risk, though, is that they're too tied to particular systems. And so maybe it's hard for one system, but it still has its own biases. Aha. Uh-huh. So uh, we, we actually looked at this. And so we had the human question writers interact with a very simple IR question answering system, uh, not complicated at all, uh, about 100 lines of Python code. And we then shipped it off to another group who had nothing to do with this process and asked them to run their fancy pants neural system on it. And it was still very challenging. And so maybe there are aspects that uh, could uh, stump an IR system that a uh, neural system can't handle, but we're not quite there yet. And so even the things that stump an IR system at the moment are stumping the, the neural systems as well for these two very specific systems. Yeah, and I guess another uh, challenge, another potential problem with an adversarially constructed data set is that it's totally unnatural. Like why the output might be something that a person never really cares about because you're making it artificially hard to the, to the, to the extent that people don't really, it, it's not a natural distribution. Why should, why should we even study this problem? I think that's a good point. One of the ways that we tried to control against that is that we told the writers that these questions were still meant for humans. And so they still had the norms that they were typically using when they were writing questions for humans. They would still apply them to these adversarially written questions. And when we had a game against humans and computers, the humans really didn't notice any big differences in the questions. There were two or three questions that felt a little funny, but they they didn't view them as completely unnatural. And maybe if we iterate this process many times, we will get to the point where they are unnatural, but we're not quite there yet. And at the moment, I think we're exposing some of the things that are difficult for computers. Yeah, interesting. That's great. Uh, Definitely something to consider if you're thinking of doing this though on, on some other task, right? Exactly. And this is where it might be a problem if you're, say, using crowd workers who don't have a strict code of ethics and norms that that they follow in creating these uh, examples. And one of the things that uh, we'll be doing is we're doing another round of this experiment. You can watch the first round on YouTube. And so presumably we can have a link that that people can look at on the uh, podcast uh, information. And uh, we'll be doing another round of competition on December 15th. And so if people want to enter their question answering systems that can perform well on these adversarial examples, or if they're trivia writers who want to stump 
question answering systems, they can generate their own questions. Or if they're a trivia team, they can uh, come to College Park, Maryland and face off against computers on these adversarially written questions. Yeah, great. Um, I, I, we're getting a little low on time. I think we should wrap up with a discussion of this last axis, which is what, what's the nature of the answer that the question, that the system has to produce. So, um, we've seen a, a little bit of variety here. So there are multiple choice questions. There are science question answering data sets out of AI2 that do a lot of this. Um, there was, uh, MC test by Microsoft Research that was reading comprehension. Uh, you get a short passage of test, a short passage of text, and a bunch of multiple choice uh, answer question, a bunch of questions with multiple choice answers. Um, there are question answer, question answering data sets that require generating a short phrase. I'm actually not aware of very many of these. I know there are some on Aristo. Uh, so the science questions, uh, I'm not familiar with many. So MS Marco, MS Marco is one where you have to generate a, a piece of text. But um, this is hard because it's not really clear how to evaluate it. So I think we don't see this very often. So in 2017, there was a Trek task called Complex Answer Retrieval, where you have a very short prompt. And then, for example, what are the issues with the iPhone 7? And you have to generate a long essay about that. And it's basically generating long, long answers for very short not quite questions, but more like issues or debates. And how how was that evaluated by human judges? Uh, so there there are some automatic metrics, but yeah, the gold standard is uh, human evaluation. Yeah, I'm really skeptical of things like Blue for evaluating these these kinds of things, and so it feels like that problem has to be solved a lot more satisfactorily before I'm really ready to do research on this kind of more complex question answering. Exactly. And, and so they, they tried to make it a little more reasonable by having topics that must be mentioned, should be mentioned, or can be mentioned, or things that are completely out of scope. But that's not a complete way of evaluating it. Yeah. And another format for answering questions that's pretty popular these days uh, for, because of Squad, which we've talked about a couple of times, uh, though I don't think we actually said the name. This is the Stanford question answering data set. Uh, you're given a passage of text and you need to point to a span in that text that, that contains the answer. I like this a lot, actually. I, I I think it's a nice format for question answering because it allows uh, complex answers, but it's it's bounded and it's easy to evaluate. So there's like n squared possibilities you have to pick from, which isn't it, it's not a tiny set. It's not four in a multiple choice question, um, but it's not infinite, and it's 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 clear how to evaluate this. So I I like that one a lot. Yeah, another format that I like is where you're supposed to generate a very specific entity. And, and this is the format that, say, Quizbowl uses. You have a very large but mostly bounded set of entities that you could answer. And this gets rid of some of the problems that you might see in span answers, where if you answer USA for United States of America, is that right or wrong? Yeah, th so you're right. There are some challenges with span-based evaluations. The one challenge with this select pick from an entity list is what if my answer wasn't in that list or the answer I'm looking for, right? So you're, you're by construction limiting the, the scope uh, of your question answering. Though you, you could argue that span-based question answering does that too because you're, you're restricting yourself to whatever you can see in a particular paragraph. Yeah, and, and for things like Trivia QA and Quizbowl, 
uh, these are data sets that are human generated without thinking about what the answer set is. And 80 to 90% of the answers do lie in, say, all of the Wikipedia page titles. So as an outsider, I didn't really work on uh, question answering systems before. And uh, I wonder with so many data sets, there's basically a data set coming out for question answering every week. And I don't know really where to start or like, obviously different models will work better for different types of questions. Uh, or question answering tasks. Um, do you have any advice for someone who's still like trying to learn about this area or trying to start? I, I think pragmatically, if you're a true beginner, I would probably suggest starting on something like Squad. There, are, it's a relatively constrained problem, as Matt said, and there are a lot of good resources out there. You can download code to get you started, and you can quickly iterate on it. I think that one of the things that we as a community need to do better is to not just define tasks, but also to provide frameworks so that people can explore problems like question answering in a more consistent way. So that we're not just having a proliferation of data sets, each with its own method for answering the questions in that data set, but being able to have general purpose question answering. And in some ways, this is a little like the AI versus AGI debate. And uh, maybe we need to focus more on general question answering. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I am having a hard time thinking of how to answer that, how to answer Waleed's question, because I just talked about these five different axes uh, that question answering tasks can fall under, and there's such variety, uh, as you said. And it, where to, w what you should focus on, I think, really depends on what you're interested in. What kind of underlying phenomena do you really want to study? Do you want to study reasoning systems? Uh, if, if so, you probably want to do something like semantic parsing, something that requires uh, some kind of underlying like logical formalism that will permit discrete reasoning and counting and set operations. Uh, there are probably some people that would, that would argue with me about the, the need for like a discrete logical formalism, but the data sets that, that are designed for this, like Wikitable questions or uh, Cornell natural language visual reasoning, um, these these kinds of data sets permit more like formal, logic, discrete kinds of reasoning. If that's what you want to study, that's where you should focus. If what you care about is more like connecting multiple facts together, then something like Quizbowl or even Jeopardy, though I don't think they're very standard data sets or evaluations for that just yet. Uh, Watson kind of did their own thing. But Quizbowl or Trivia QA, maybe, but there's not as much connecting of stuff there. There's WikiHop some like multi-step kinds of uh, data sets, complex web questions. So there, there are a number of things to study there. Um, so I guess to answer your question, what I would, what I would think first, um, question answering is, is, is a format, right? It's not a, it's not a problem. It's not a, it's not a phenomenon to study. It's, it's, it's a way to study a phenomenon. And so what you should think about is what do I want to study? What do I care about? And then figure out if question answering is the right way to study that phenomenon. And if so, what data sets should That's a good way of thinking of it. And one pragmatic consideration I would also add that you mentioned for like long answer question answering is that is there a good evaluation? And if you're going to work on question answering, one of the benefits of working on question answering is that it's often easy to evaluate or straightforward to evaluate. It's not easy. And you should make sure that your question answering framework allows for a consistent reproducible evaluation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, for, uh, so let's say I'm, I'm interested in semantic parsing and um, I could like build my semantic parser 
uh, I don't know, maybe FrameNet Sonic parser and then uh, evaluated on this the FrameNet data set and then as a downstream task, I would consider one of the data sets that would actually require some form of reasoning um, and, and use my the, the representations I'm predicting. But I, I wonder if the current state-of-the-art systems for some of these question answering systems actually require um, this form of linguistic analysis or most of them just have one model that's fitting for the answers directly trying to answer the, the format that basically that we're trying to, to address. Yeah, we should be a little bit careful there because you said FrameNet, frame semantic parsing. That's a little bit different from what I was talking about with semantic parsing. Uh, FrameNet is is like a lot more like semantic role labeling or finding predicate argument structures. That That's not what I meant when I said semantic parsing. Terminology is a little bit confusing here, unfortunately. Uh, what I meant was parsing to a logical formalism that like like first order logic. But where, it's the same where, it's the same point. I think it's uh, it, it's actually not because on Wikitable questions you have to like add sets. You have to be able to sort things, and you can't do that with predicate argument structures, right? It, it's a it's a different kind of operation. I mean, there is already like an existing data set that you can use to to, to do both types of uh, of of uh, of problems, and and so you can use the intrinsic data set for for assessing how you how well you're doing you're doing the linguistic analysis and then use the question answer format in order to see how well it does in in a more practical scenario although that being said one very frustrating thing that i think comes up a lot is that people have this great idea i'm going to use amr for question answering and they try to apply it to question answering and maybe it helps 0.002% or something many of the things in question answering at least with our current data sets can be solved really stupidly and as i mentioned before there are these shortcuts that computers can take and until we can eliminate those shortcuts we're not going to be able to see the gains from using amr or uh logical forms until those shortcuts are cut out of the picture so the underlying so what you're saying is these question answering platforms are not necessarily a good way of assessing how well we're doing to to analyze language which kind of defeats uh, one of the main reasons we're trying to answer them. I, I think that we're trying to do science, and science is in many ways iterative, and uh, we're doing the simple stuff first, and hopefully we can improve the data sets so that the data sets will capture the kind of phenomenon that we want computers to understand. And maybe a side effect is that we will have another N-squared data sets to deal with that will try to suss out these different combinations of problems and data. Great. Uh, I think we've done a good job talking about all of these different axes. I I like question answering a lot. Uh, I'm pretty motivated by this. This is where I spend my time doing my research. Uh, it seems like you agree, Jordan. Any last thoughts? Anything you wanted to talk about that we missed? So I, I guess I'll end with uh, a plug again for our December 15th human computer question answering competition. You can find more details at quanta.org. Question answering is not a trivial activity. And you can figure out how to enter systems, enter human teams, or write questions for the event. This is a good opportunity not just to advance the state of the art in research, but also to engage communities like high schoolers, college students who aren't, say, computer scientists, and help them understand what is possible in question answering, machine learning, natural language processing. You can learn a lot by the hilarious wrong answers that these computer systems produce, and more people are going to know about it based on funny YouTube videos or seeing it live in person than 
reading any yeah, NLP. We'll definitely paper. have some links in our podcast description. Great. Thanks for coming on. It was really nice talking to you. Likewise. Thanks for having me.